0: Welcome to thinking deeply about primary education the podcast that gives you a peek inside the minds of some truly inspirational teachers this week i'm thrilled to welcome adam smith onto the podcast to talk about all things religious education since we recorded this episode back in february half term 2021 adam has gone on to create the sensational powerful curriculum podcast and i highly recommend you make a visit there once you've finished up here without further ado let's spend some time thinking deeply about primary religious education Cool. So we we always start with our, our guess in numbers. Um, and so the rules generally are, you know, you can only answer numbers. Not that everyone sticks to those rules much. No and so my first question is years as a teacher?
1: Uh, four years. Four years as a teacher now.
0: Last year group taught?
1: Uh, year six. I'm a year six teacher at the moment.
0: Most important year group?
1: What a horrible question. <laughs> Basically, I decided on any transitional year group so any year group moving from one key stage to another so year one year three six nine eleven thirteen I guess moving into key stage six um yeah I, I just think that those year groups are where you see a real shift in students we were doing comparative judgment recently looking at some science writing and it's really I mean it was such an eye-opener for me as someone who's come to primary um we were judging pieces from year one all the way up to year six and I did them one after the other going backwards in time from year six to year one and I just thought oh my goodness some of these teachers are must be just miracle workers because this is the end of the autumn term and the gap between the year one piece and the year two piece the year two piece and the year three piece is vast Uh, and I think you especially see that around transition years so you especially see that moving from reception into year one Um, so I'm going to hedge my bets and say more or less every year group, but particularly transition year groups.
0: Nice. I think um, the teachers in transition year groups feel the intensity at the very start of the year, you know, but as you say, you know, once they they get going, I think, um, yeah, you know, the work they do there is is so important. And that's that's a really good answer. And what's your favourite year group?
1: Um, I'm going to go for a wild card here, and I'm going to say year seven, uh, which is outside primary, obviously, but uh, I love teaching Year 7, they're so enthusiastic, arriving at secondary school for the first time. Um, got to teach RE all day, which, you know, I absolutely love being a primary teacher, but RE is obviously a huge passion for me. Um, and it's kind of a, a bit of a fresh start. So you get a bit of a chance to, to lay some new foundational, like, uh, behavioural groundwork, you get the chance to introduce them to lots of new topics, and introduce them to new, like, disciplinary ways of working, if you're just doing RE. Um, and that's I've always sort of dreamt really of working in a middle school so when I was growing up we didn't go to high school until year eight I went to a middle school I think year five six and seven and I was taught by specialist teachers year five six and seven in the same way that secondary schools are and uh, I feel really fortunate for that Uh, it was a good stepping stone from primary to secondary and so my dream job would be as a an RE history geography teacher humanities teacher in a in a five six and seven school so yeah i'm gonna say year seven
0: nice that sounds awesome And i know when, whenever i talk to like um people like christopher such about a specialist model he normally thinks you know he says to me that latter part of key stage two is where you can really get the benefit and it sounds like your experience has sort of borne out and um, you know the things he's thinking about him um,
1: yeah when he was talking about it on the podcast i was nodding along vigorously like yes i think we i mean we're really fortunate to have <clears throat> music art uh, MFL. Uh, I even have someone in, in class who's a HLTA, who's a fantastic maths expert, who's been teaching with our, our maths scheme uh, for for many years, which I find incredibly valuable. Um, and we're lucky to be more than one form entry. You know, we're two or three, well three form in year six, so we have specialists who sort of specialise in English and maths in each year group. Um, but I don't necessarily. I think there's such a huge gap between year six and year seven that transition is vast that actually the middle school model uh, with specialists bridges that gap, because you can have more of a class relation, relationship. Um, you Yeah, I think like Christopher was saying, you need to strike more of a balance in those upper key stage two-year groups.
0: Blog posts? Uh,
1: I, well, I had to count them because I couldn't work out on WordPress, so I just sat there this morning like uh, 29 blog
0: posts. And blog hits?
1: um 47,000 which oh. surprised me um <laughs> i don't know where they all come from because i log on and i'm like ooh wow 80 hits that's amazing but yeah apparently over 2 years 47,000 so that was good
0: that is really impressive and I, I but i think it it shows the quality of those blog posts as well um, and <laughs> you know i and like even though is not to do with my job per se i'll still read them and uh and i'll definitely put them in the show notes and so they'll oh, be. People- that's nice thank you
1: i uh, I'm gonna go down a more BuzzFeed route next year. I'm aiming for a hundred thousand so I'm thinking you know like listicles and and clickbait and things like that. You will not believe what this this one easy trick to uh fix r e in your schools so.
0: <laughs> and the, this was the last question everyone gets asked tweets
1: uh I don't feel as ashamed about this as other people only or well, only but um eight thousand two hundred and ninety five um that's okay <laughs> I won't tell you how many. On the other Twitter account I've had since two thousand and eight, but teacher Twitter eight thousand two
0: hundred ninety five. So nice, yeah, and um, yeah, because we, we we always talk about this, and you know people think you know I've tweeted lots, of tweeted not so much. Um, I I don't really know what a normal amount of tweets is, you know, because I'm sure there's no. some. Like It'd be st-
1: good to get some data on that, wouldn't it, to make sure that you're not absurdly abnormal in the amount that you tweet. It'd Be good to know what the median is.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm reaching four thousand soon but it's um yeah I I reckon I'm definitely on the low end you know tweeting you know more than once a day recently yeah
1: you need to up it I mean I'm desperate to know what you've had for lunch today and uh (laughs) you know like if you go by my model I tweeted a very popular tweet earlier about my circumnavigation of Canvey Island over half term you know this is the kind of content people crave so you just got to get on that
0: excellent Um, so you're a year six teacher RE lead and executive for the National Association of Teachers of Religious Education and tell us about your journey and how you got here.
1: Yeah absolutely it's quite an unusual journey so um, I uh, went back to university in my mid-20s I got married in freshers week actually so it's all a very (laughs) intense period of time Um, and I studied uh, liberal arts so a little bit of uh, theology a little bit of art history a little bit of philosophy or quite a lot of philosophy and um At no point during those three years, despite my sort of uh, tutor's insistence, did I want to become a teacher. At no point really up until, um, you know, I I just, it wasn't an idea that really occurred to me. In fact, I went back to university because I thought that I might want to become a priest, uh, not a teacher. Um, And obviously things got in the way of that uh, because I'm in a a same-sex marriage. So I had to consider a different uh, roadmap, and I was going into schools because uh, when I was growing up, I was in foster care, uh, in and out of care. So I was going into schools to um, run sort of aspirational assemblies from the university about going to university. Uh, I was also doing residentials with kids who were care experienced or in care uh, at the university. And I did a lot of that in my third year and uh, got to the last term of my third year and suddenly thought. All right. okay, uh, well, I can do a master's, you know, I can get, go down that route. And actually, I, I just decided I wanted to do, I wanted to work. I wanted to um, have a career, you know, as if it was 1955, those things that, that people apparently outside academia were able to have. Um, and uh, I looked at what I was qualified for, and I looked at what I was passionate about, and I um, uh and I would over primary and secondary. And uh, I came down on the side of secondary because I was interested in the subject matter, specialisation, things like that. So I went off to Oxford to do a secondary PGC in religious education and uh, had a great time, enjoyed my year at Oxford and um, thought PGC was, was fine basically. Uh, and then I moved to Cambridgeshire and I got a job as an RE teacher in a huge school, 2,500 students in a um, fairly uh, ordinary town in Cambridgeshire. And uh, it was fine. Uh, I mean, the school was nice. I had a very uh, supportive head of department. Um, I developed a a sort of love for uh, RE there. And I think that what we were doing there was was pretty strong. I had some instant, well, I had a constant recurring existential (laughs) crisis every month or two that I just didn't, I couldn't teach because you know, behavior disruption, or I, I felt like I just didn't have the chops to do it, I wasn't built for it. I think a lot of NQTs and, and RQTs probably feel like that on occasion. Um, and then almost in the same way that someone knocks on your door and gives you the Book of Mormon, um, a member of the SLT there gave me Daisy Christodoulou's uh, Seven Myths About Education, and um, another member of, uh, probably the same member of SLT gave me Barrack Rosenstein's Principles of Instruction, and uh that's that was sort of my transformational moment really that was when i uh, realized i could um i could improve like quickly and uh i could improve practically and i could improve material outcomes in my class and in my uh literally like in exam and assessment results by doing some really practical steps before that it was very much like i'm a reflective teacher you know i'm going to take time and it's going to be slow and i still believe that but um Rosenshine and Christopher and all the reading that came after that gave me like Douglas Limov for example gave me a practical handbook for change and then I felt that within that school I kind of got as far as I had got in doing those practical changes and I wanted a change of environment I wanted to go to a school that that kind of was based more fully on those principles so I wanted to go and find a school uh, and actually I think this is probably the first time I've ever said this but it's long ago long ago enough in the past now that I can kind of admit to it but um, I went and interviewed at Michaela because I thought that's kind of where I wanted because you know that was somewhere that I wanted to go and I uh, looked at other schools around London and the southeast with similar ideas and I interviewed at a few of them. Um, at the same time I uh, I left my job at, sort of handed in my notice at October and it was December and I'd put out um, on EduTwitter, I'd thrown myself on the mercy of EduTwitter um desperate <laughs> desperate <laughs> maybe desperate maybe not but looking for something to do for two terms because I thought by September you know the, these jobs at Michaela and wherever else I was applying for they're all September starts and I thought I've got loads of time to explore and find out what I want to do but I want these two months think of it like a career break and I can go do something weird and unusual I thought I could go and do some curriculum work because that's where my interest has always been I could go and do cover work in a in a school I could go um and maybe do two days a week here, three days a week there. So I put it out there, I was really shocked. I think Neil said this as well about his career, that the response was amazing. People are, you know, at the time, I probably didn't have more than a thousand followers, but people were like offering me bits and bobs and, and saying, come and visit and talk to me and blah, blah, blah. Um, and all this time has always been secondary. I'd never really considered primary since I started my PGC. And then my current head teacher, um, messaged me uh on on twitter and was like you know this is uh, our school um I'd like to have you come in and talk to us and have a look around the school I think you'd really enjoy it uh and I replied you know very politely you know thank you so and mostly I would reply oh, I'll take a look yeah great fantastic let me get back to you I was like no thank you so much for the offer but I don't I'm not a primary teacher <laughs> you know I don't I don't see myself in primary I'm not naturally you know I didn't naturally see myself as a primary teacher. And she, fortunately for me, was uh, persistent. So she messaged me again, probably about a week later and said, look, okay, I think you'll love it. Here's what we've done. Actually, we've just um, been off under the new framework and we came out outstanding and here's the Ofsted report and here's our curriculum and here's what we're working on. We want you to come and, you know, we feel like we've got everything in place for the other subjects we're working. We've got a clear progression for what we want to do there. But RE, you know, it's not looking great. Um and uh I uh, replied again saying thank you. She was like, let me call you. Uh and I, I remember standing out on the bus bays after school uh in December. It was probably dark by then, it was about 4:30. And the last bus sort of left and she rang me. And uh yeah, it was a real kind of moment of revelation because I kind of all, in that moment I like opened myself up to the idea that I could work in primary. <laughs> Uh, even if it was just for two terms, so I went down to London and I had an interview, and I did an interview lesson where I was so excited and happy to be teaching children who were enthusiastic in Year Three, and it was you know such a that I forgot to do the written task. It was just me talking about light in RE for like forty-five minutes or something stupid, uh, and then we had a really great conversation about like what my role could be at the school, and that was all December two thousand nineteen well it feels like longer away um, and I started there in January 2020, o- ominous soundtrack begins um, and uh, throughout my time yeah so I, d- I did cover work for the next three months, um, I worked on the RE curriculum, I ended up teaching quite a lot of cover which I just loved, I had the opportunity to go into classroom student year one to six, all of the planning had been done for me, um, I was just picking up teachers work, it was absolutely brilliant so I loved doing that. I absolutely loved it. Um, and then, of course, March happened. <laughs> uh, it just before, I was looking because it was just before World Book Day. So all these bizarre photos of us dressed up for fun having World Book Day. Little did we know what was just coming around the corner. In fact, I particularly remember World Book Day because it was pouring it down with rain and we had a fire alarm go off. And I remember these poor... Five and six-year-olds dressed as fairies and dressed as characters from books, just drenched and shivering in the rain, standing outside in Southwark. That was, um, yeah, that was interesting to see. <laughs> I think you really see a school come together when you've got um, when you're suddenly standing in a car park trying to to organise everyone. So that was good. Um, and then, yeah, and then the school just like that came up with the most incredible virtual school. I was part of some of the meetings, but not all of them, and wow just seeing the school were into action uh, over the virtual school and building it made me realize why well, I already knew but confirmed for me that this was an incredibly special school full of the most amazing teachers and leaders and like I'd be stupid to kind of I was so happy um and I was going to leave at the end of the summer term you know why would I do that unfortunately just before we locked down Um, a a class teacher role came up which is quite rare I I gather in a lot of primary schools it's not like secondary schools where there's lots of roles coming up and uh, I popped my head around the head teacher's door and I was like oh I'm just just to let you know I'm thinking of applying thinking she'd be like whoa we thought you're going back to secondary but she was like yeah I know I know you're going to apply because you're happy and she could see like the transformation that um, that I'd been through in that in the, just those three months and it's she says to me now you know like I can see that you're a different person from who you are when you first started with us and that's very true so yeah so I took the role and I became a permanent member of staff and uh, in September I got a year six class who I just love teaching year six absolutely love its bits uh, I've worked on the RE curriculum there which obviously we'll talk about a little bit later um, and um, yeah I guess I'm a primary school teacher now I mean you can tell look at the jazzy shirt I, this is this was a post-prime this was a post-secondary purchase if you look behind me in my wardrobe you'll see there's a selection of jazzy shirts and plain shirts and that really marks my transition from from secondary to primary
0: <laughs> excellent uh, that, that, that's some sequence of events and um, i think you know particularly in terms of you know a role coming up at the time it did because um from what i can see a lot of people are sort of almost staying in their positions or in their roles because of the uncertainty of the the world around. So that's really fortunate and fantastic to hear that you're so enjoying uh, primary so much. Um, Mm. And what, you know, imagine being those those two books, you couldn't have been handed two better books um, for your professional development, you know, because Seven Myths hasn't come up yet. Um, Mm. But I know a lot of teachers can relate to the impact it has, you know, because I often, we we talk about the Thunderbolt it, it was a thunderbolt for the whole profession, I think, yeah, really.
1: It was a real thunderbolt because up until that point, all of the education books that I'd read already agreed with everything that I believed. So I went into teaching super prog, loved Paulo Freire, thought that was the bee's knees. I remember having arguments in my PGC when we were reading research, I was like, you can't do research into education. It's all about, you know, how, it's all about feeling and it's all about like, there's no, this is immoral to try and do scientific research into education, it just doesn't work. And I'm like, it's good that you can see your, I mean, the most reflective thing you can do is look back on yourself and cringe, isn't it? I mean, that's that's reflective. Um, and yeah, so when I read Daisy Christodoulou, Uh, I initially came at it with quite a lot of hostility and then I was like oh I got to like myth seven and I was like okay well what's the what's the credentials of this person and looked in the bibliography and looked at all that and I was like oh my lord Um, and then that that really started a very swift transition really Um, yeah (laughs) Thunderbolt is right I mean it wasn't a gentle shower it was it was swift and uh, Twitter that was probably when I got my Twitter account about then. Um, Oh, I remember, um, this is probably (laughs) not great, but I remember unfollowing certain people at the time because I just thought like, actually, no, I, you know, I'm changing the kind of teacher that I am. Um, Yeah, it was a bit of an an unusual time to have, to go into it feeling like, oh, the, the learning period is done. I've done my PGCE, got two massive lever arch folders that show that I'm like, qualified and know what i'm talking about i'm ready and then in your first year of teaching for you to have everything absolutely turned upside down is quite dramatic and possibly that was like the you know the, the flapping of the butterfly's wings that led to me um well being where i am now
0: yeah it's it's fascinating because at the minute i'm trying to work out whether or not we need to go through that period you know if it's some because it happens you know i don't think i've met anyone who hasn't explained it and you know in similar terms of mm-hmm. thinking you know so much and then realizing how little you know and you know I, i'm trying to find if anyone's done any background research into whether or not it is a necessary sort of you know not rite of passage but a a, deve- a part of the, the development process and you know, yeah
1: it's-, it's but then that implies there's always going to be um, I don't I want to put this in the most polite way possible but there's always going to be a lost period of every teacher's career and for some people who've come on your podcast that's been you know for in my case maybe a couple of months into my NQT but for other people that was a lot longer period and I think there's obviously value in what happens in that period that's not dismissing that but um, is there a way that we can do ITT that that misses that period but then you know it's like what I thought Neil talking about when he went to that school the ARC school and they put Doug Limov in front of him and um and he it didn't work for him so is that what would happen in ITT if we were giving that straight up I mean I guess that's where something like Teach First comes in um uh, because they've got a completely different model of of what's important um, uh, in uh, in their and their ITT program
0: yeah, and I, I definitely don't know the answer, and um, it's just something I found really interesting. And um, I think yeah. the Ambition Institute—they seem to be exploring that early teacher development um, process. And they seem to have their priorities in order in terms of how teachers grow. So it could be that we find out an answer to that, you know, sooner rather than later. Um,
1: yeah, absolutely. I think I agree with that.
0: You're extremely passionate about high-quality religious education in primary, and um, why is RE essential at our phase of schooling?
1: Um, this is another moment that is, I'd love to come on the podcast and be like, yeah, it's because of this and this and this and this. It's all really clear, but it's always constantly filled with self-doubt when I think about the importance of RE because um, you're constantly coming up with and meeting people who just don't share the same importance that you do. I mean, I I mentioned earlier that I want to be a priest. I'm practicing Anglican, uh, Anglo-Catholic Christian. Um, So for me, there's an inherent importance in re because a lot of my non-teacher life is quite heavily focused on on practicing religion and um you know and and i feel quite heavily uh bathed in religious culture and things like that and i can see the benefit that it has for me uh in that but then i have to separate that because that's all about my personal experience that's all about um having religious belief and i'm very fun like sure that re is just as important for people with no religious belief whatsoever because and that's where I have to that's the starting point I have to go from. I can't start from a point of you know well, it's obviously important to people with religious belief but here's trying to work backwards and understand why it's important to everyone so I put that completely aside and I think about well what is it that they actually learn in RE I mean there's all the stuff that you hear and any RE you know, anyone who suddenly had Ofsted knocking on their door could say about RE, you know, it's about social cohesion, it's about making kids understanding of others, it's about improving our society. And it's, that's all very lofty. And I think those are good side effects of good RE, but it's not, for me, that's a very, very finicky thing to go and say that that's what our RE program is leading up to. And I think that you can also get down the route where you start to, um how to put this? I want to use the word castrate. I'm going to use the word castrate. You start to castrate religion. So you start to turn it into something that is very like touchy-feely and, and you know, cotton wool and all elements of religion are good. And and I don't think that's necessarily helpful. Instead, I like to look at religion through uh, RE, through some different lenses. And one of those lenses that's really important to me is about religious and cultural literacy. So I really believe V.D. E. Hirsch, when he talks about cultural literacy and being able to interact with the world in a mature way. I also think that having a certain level of cultural literacy or understanding of almost like a national or an international culture, um, that helps children to access further learning as well. And that's really crucially important. RE is a foundation to being able to access other subjects. You know, you won't find RE in most universities. You won't find a section in Waterstones labeled RE because it's not like history or geography or music. It doesn't have an academic foundation like that. it's a a multidisciplinary subject. And by offering and delivering high quality religious education, what we're doing is we're giving students the tools to be able to access and have a deep understanding of a huge range of different Uh, academic disciplines both in primary secondary tertiary education and in their adult life I think you couldn't I mean not to pick like cliched high culture examples but you couldn't get everything out of Dostoevsky unless you had some understanding of the bible you couldn't get everything out of you know even like fantasy novels that I love reading are improved because you see the parallels uh, with Islam or Christianity or different religious ideas. The, the fantasy novel I'm reading at the moment, Robert Jordan, brings in bits of Buddhism, bits of Christianity, Hinduism, Judaism. And I mean, that's, that's one thing, but that's only a tiny part of it. And then you go to the National Gallery and then you watch a film and then you um, interact with history in any form over the hold of human existence and an understanding of basic religious concepts helps there. And then all that other stuff, you know, it helps our students discover who they are. It that's great, and that's but that's that's secondary to the primary focus for me, which is RE is a, a right down at the bottom foundational building block for understanding local culture, British culture, European culture, worldwide culture. It's that that's what it is for me, not. That's not the clearest explanation I've ever given, but and it went in about twenty five different directions um, but probably that shows off a little bit of the passion that I have about it. That I can't quite focus my mind on an easy simple answer to that question
0: I think you you've you probably got the hardest one because I've asked everyone that question on this season, but because of the emotion and the you know the the history of you know that everyone comes to our religion with and i think it's it's the it's the hardest one to answer like you say objectively and i i think you've done a really good job and because you know the the way i interpret religion is it's it's how peoples have made sense of the world and the universe over you know over millennia and and so it feels like you're like you say that that makes it the basis because almost a lot of all the rest of the stuff that we do once we feel we understand where we are. You know, in, in this um, you know, in in this world, then that's where the decisions come from. You know, so I, I think you're spot on. I'm um, I'm actually reading Dostoevsky at the moment. You know, I think three three pages at a time. Um, of crime yeah. and punishment. I've tried. We're the-
1: actually we're actually teaching crime and punishment to Year Six at the moment. We've just had them um, write uh, persuasive paragraphs to Raskolnikov about whether he should kill <laughs> the uh, the evil landlady or not. So that's been really fun. Surprising number of Year Sixes are incredibly moral, I really thought we were going to have a lot more murderers on our hands, but I was taken aback reading sixty responses and they were all don't murder them
0: I suppose that's a, that's a relief <laughs> <laughs> do you think anyone at your school will blog about that experience that sounds really interesting
1: well we've got like the English coordinator in year six is absolutely incredible um, and i 'm this is by far the thing that I look forward to most in the year is teaching crime and punishment we don't um, we don't use the original text, although I'm reading the original text at the moment, obviously because you know it's year six. Um, uh, but we do use um, we use a nice version of it that's really well written, uh, and we combine it with a really rigorous uh, topic in geography that looks at Russia, but also Russian history and things like that. So, yeah, so it's really well thought out, and it's got a good place in our curriculum. Um, yeah, it's good
0: nice yeah it would be your class novel for about seven years if you
1: <laughs> yeah okay so we start reading crime and punishment in year one and then <laughs> we finish in year six and that's our entire English curriculum
0: yeah because like I said I have to break it down and right. okay if you read three pages that's a success and then you build and you always read more and um, yeah I remember feeling when I was about 20 22 and um, and now I've come back and like, this time I'm going to finish this book yeah because um, it is wonderful and um, It just just takes effort, doesn't it? Um, And if if you had to condense your approach to the teaching of RE into a set of guiding principles, what would they be?
1: Uh, Okay, and I thought about this a little bit. So I thought three principles. Principle one, RE is not special. Okay, you might not expect me to say that. Um, RE has a... Let me be opinionated. Let me step back from, you know, like objective. Let me just give my opinion. I think RE has a stupid place in the curriculum. Um, I think that it should be on the national curriculum. The way it works is that, you know, our schools are obligated to teach some form of RE. Every single, every single state maintained school in the country has some obligation to teach it. And then after that, um, you need a flowchart, a literal flowchart to understand based on the funding of your school, the type of school you are, the faith nature of your school, what kind of curriculum you have to follow. Academy, free school, foundation school, voluntary aided school, faith school. And then after that, if you are someone who has to follow a locally agreed syllabus, you then have to find that syllabus, which varies wildly in quality and quantity and resourcing from, I mean, I've never understood why it's done by, I guess I do understand why it's done by local authority area, but Southwark is different to Lambeth, is different to Newham, is different to Barnet, Burnley is different to Blackburn, you know, so there's so much duplicated effort going on there. And then you have to follow it. Or you don't, if you're in an academy or a free school, um, or a faith school, and you know history is just like you just follow the national curriculum, and you know that you can talk to other RE, other history teachers, other history leads around the country about um, doing the Romans or doing uh, you know African kingdoms or whatever it is. RE is so varied and so disparate and so nebulous. I find that really frustrating. So my um, sort of number one is it's it's stupid, and part of that would be to keep it simple and keep it focused. So keep it focused on um, three theological, uh, three uh, disciplinary lenses, which have come out of the Norfolk locally agreed syllabus and the book "Making Every RE Lesson Count," which is theological, philosophical, and social sciences, or I call it cultural historical. So keep it focused on those three things, make sure everything in your curriculum falls under one of those lenses, make sure it's justified, make sure it covers, again, controversial opinion, but I think six religions is fine and actually in our curriculum we specialize in Islam and Christianity and do introductions to the other four major religions, which are Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism and Judaism. There are people out there who want to do Zoroastrianism, wants to do uh, Bahai, and that's great. Um, non-religious worldviews, I think, are worthy of inclusion now. But that basically just means atheism and humanism, which, you know, the extent to which you can really study those as phenomena is very debated. Keep it simple, keep it focused, which is what I'm not doing with this explanation. I'm not keeping it simple and focused. So, good note to myself: keep it simple and keep it focused. Um, I guess the next point was make sure it's re, because a lot of citizenship re is like a gas, right? RE will fill any gap that you have in your curriculum. Any uh, Ofsted report that I've seen that comes back saying um, SMSC at this school could be improved, the first email goes to the lead uh, head of RE, uh, and that's wrong. <laughs> you know that that is a cross-curricular responsibility. Um, PHSE is its own subject. Citizenship is its own subject. Um, if you are head of leading RE, you need to know what RE is, and you need to make sure that you maintain those boundaries. What's that Roman uh, tortoise formation that every year three learns and then makes a little cardboard model of they need to test test or something they need to do that right they need to do that around their subject and be really clear that no I'm sorry we can't teach inspirational women figures unless it's really clearly linked to religion, philosophy, uh, say so theology philosophy or social uh, historical elements of religion right Just you have to learn to say no. Um, And and that comes when you're reviewing your own curriculum, you need to have people that you can say, oh, this is actually more part of our PHSE curriculum, or this is more part of our um, pastoral curriculum. And then the third thing is to make it rich and beautiful. Um, Yeah, I feel incredibly passionate about making RE rich and beautiful. Um, I mean by rich as I mean, I always use this phrase knowledge rich, but not knowledge heavy, Or it can be knowledge heavy, but the focus should be on the richness of the knowledge. knowledge heavy is just being able to recite a list of keywords or dates and things like that and there's nothing wrong with that and it's very important in many primary stages that kids know dates and kids know names and keywords richness is more about understanding concepts in religion and being able to apply those across different religions and across different areas of those three lenses and then culturally rich and beautiful, you know, I don't shy away from that word beautiful. I know everyone has different conceptions of beauty, but um, making the curriculum beautiful is crucial, whether that is in resource design, but particularly in using um, art and art history and architecture. So my RE curriculum is jammed full of like architectural tidbits and uh, Renaissance paintings and Aboriginal art and Ethiopian icons and things like that, because I wrote a blog post a while ago about how I was using the most hideously illustrated cartoon of Isaac and uh, Abraham and Isaac in year seven and then I was I stepped back and I was like well Caravaggio who's like my favorite artist did this incredible painting and I got a high-res version of that and I stood on the board zooming in and, and looking at all the different parts of it and that is a rich lesson and students go away with that I think it makes better connections to their long-term memory and uh, it improves their cultural literacy and all that whereas the cartoon lesson is it's quite an easy lesson because you just play a cartoon and then you ask some comprehension activities about it. And they'll know about the story of Isaac and Abraham, but they won't get those side effects. So those are my three things. Keep it simple and focused. Make sure it's RE and uh, make it rich and beautiful.
0: Nice. You know, never apologize for for going off because, you know, your passions are coming through. And I think people will find it really interesting. So you know, Don't worry about that one bit. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really interesting you say about making sure it's RE because that's exactly what Victoria and, Neil said about history and geography. Um, so it seems like that's, that's a thing that, um, that might permeate the foundation curriculum um, and to an extent, the core subjects too. Um, yeah, and what would your advice be to anyone who is tasked with exploring the themes and the ideas that they're going to, that they wanna teach across primary and, make, and making that distinction between, say for instance, citizenship and actual religious education?
1: Yeah, I think the first thing I would say is, um, if you are keen on teaching this kind of brand of religion, because I'm not coming on as, you know, I'm coming on as a partisan, in a way, this is my idea of religion, religious education, right? There are people out there who completely disagree with me on this. So maybe I should have said that right at the start, but I'm quite opinionated, I'm quite partisan, I'm not trying to present this as the only idea of primary RE. And this is where I'm coming from. So if you are interested in this brand of knowledge-rich, culturally-rich RE that has really clear disciplinary boundaries, it's okay to start from scratch. It's okay to um, to have conversations about whether your school needs to separate out RE and everything else. So maybe your school doesn't have a PHSE and citizenship lead. Maybe, I'm actually quite radical in this, that I would say it's worth giving up curriculum time as an RE lead to make sure that your subject is pretty disciplinarily disciplined, I guess. It's worth giving up half an hour and having half an hour lessons of RE and half an hour lessons of citizenship and PHSE, right? I'm totally up for that. Um, It's worth maybe even having RE taught every other half term if then there's going to be a clear strand of PHSE, citizenship, whatever else you want to call it, being aware of the world around you, politics, all of that can go into a different thing um because otherwise like i say it's just this gas and it will just expand 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 and as it expands it loses its denseness and richness it loses its identity and then you really struggle to claw it back so my advice is just be super clear about what you think religious education is if you disagree with me that's fine but just be clear about how and why you disagree and have a clear idea because my impression is and it's not anyone's fault but that Um, RE is probably, being an RE lead is probably you would dread a a deep dive more than most, because I think some of those questions that Ofsted would ask um, appear on the surface to be really hard to answer for RE, but shouldn't be, they shouldn't be, I think you should be able to clearly, although I'm contradicting myself here because I've already said I'm not particularly clear at this, but you should be able to have at least quite a rigorous conversation with someone around the kind of questions that an Ofsted inspector would ask in a deep dive. Um, about the purpose of RE and the intent and the implementation and, and all of that jazz.
0: Nice. The, um, the, the cultural markers you mentioned as well, I think I've, I've come to realise them the older I've gotten and, you know, there's absolutely no way I can remember if, if I wasn't introduced to them during primary school. Um, but I think, you know, if I was envisaging the RE curriculum and I had some sort of responsibility, you know, I think I I, I find a lot of value in that too, because it, it is so prevalent. And like you say, you know, Caravaggio's representation, you know, um, the, um you know, the House of Athens, I'm not sure it's necessarily religious being, but it's, it's something along those lines. We've got key historical figures um, and and how their relationship with, uh, with the world.
1: I, I'm really keen that um, all students are equipped to be like autodidacts. So that was quite a big deal for me. I went to school in the, late 90s early noughties and I wouldn't and like you know I was in care and I think uh, I had a lot of leeway at school where I wasn't particularly didn't certainly didn't achieve to my like academic potential it was only after kind of leaving school and flunking out of university for the first time that I decided I was going to go down this autodidact route and um, I remember literally being probably 19 or 20 and thinking oh my god sweet lord how where do i even start i know nothing about art nothing about architecture nothing about classical music all these kind of like as you say indicators or signifiers but also i didn't know anything about yeah i just had no knowledge and i sat out and i remember literally almost doing like rote learning of like these are the different styles of architecture these are the different birds that you would see in a garden or by the seashore these are what wildflowers are these are like. You know, giving myself a proper little Enid Blight in 1950s education of what I imagined a cultural, culturally rich person would have. I mean, obviously, that's deeply problematic when you actually dig down into the kind of things that at 19, I thought were really important. Like, you know, why did I think that reading the Iliad was more important than reading the Bhagavad Gita? I don't know. It's because of this, that and the other. And we luckily as teachers can put a lot more thought and care and preparation into what we consider to be curricularly curricularly curricular yeah why not let's go with curricularly curricularly worthy material but by giving students that foundational knowledge of different religions and different philosophies of the world and different um kind of like ways in which religion is sociologically important then we can give them the basic They i always think like talk about takeaways maya talks about takeaways um not chinese or thai but curriculum takeaways you know what do we want students to take away at the end of year six uh for me i want them to be in a position that if they never did re again they went to a school and they do exist where re is none the curriculum illegal but they exist uh, then they'd be okay then they'd have that foundation to go and find out more about religion when they leave school they'd have that foundation so that's kind of a way that i judge myself um, a little bit
0: Excellent. Yeah, that, that 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 makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I think um, I think there'll be lots of people listening. You know, like I say, you, you don't have to be of the exact same mind, but I think you're really clear in terms of these are your priorities. This is this is what you be guiding your decision making process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that, that'll be really useful. And um, and then I suppose the next one's not an easy question. In your opinion, what's the single most important aspect of religious education?
1: I'm glad that you're asking me a difficult question because I can say I've already answered it because I've written down here religious and cultural literacy equipping students for future learning and that's yeah I just can't get over that That I mean again I I know that there are people probably screaming at their podcast saying no that's not what RE is about Um, you know I, I am a partisan I have a clear vision in my head of what RE is about and that's what i That's how I've encountered it. Obviously very open to like other people and listening to them, but maybe that's, yeah, I don't know whether that's a good thing or not. But for me, cultural and religious literacy is absolutely crucial. Future learning is absolutely crucial. And the way that RE informs and is informed by history and to a lesser extent geography and English literature is hugely important and classics if, if you study that. When I said that RE wasn't special, I think um, what I really want people to think of is I want, when people say humanities uh, in um, primary, I want them to think history, geography, and RE. Um, I don't want it to be in a special category with lots of pretty bows and tape wrapped around it and a big label on it that says, you know, be careful, be delicate with it. I I want people to go at RE with the same vigor that they go at history, thinking that there's you know, a comparable level of, I can get to a point where I understand this well enough to teach this, I can feel confident about it, it's interesting, it's engaging. I don't necessarily always feel like people feel that way about RE because people always have that deficit of understanding about it, which is not an answer to the question that you just asked, but I, I answered your question very quickly and then I decided to answer my own question, so.
0: That sounds really fine. You know, I think it, it's a constant source of worry for me um coming across as if i think i know everything and um, mm. but the but and the reason the podcast is called thinking deeply is because at the very least you know if we hear something we disagree with then we're open to actually thinking a bit more about why we disagree you know mm. and actually you alluded to it earlier on you know we've we've all changed our minds at least on one significant indication in our careers and um you know i think that that's the way i approach it because you, you you almost if i qualified everything i said um, then i would spend more time qualifying than um than asserting anything and um, you know because i think in terms of maths there there are many conversations about you know which maths what is the role of maths and um, mm. but you have to you almost have to come at it from your own experience and, and where you're coming from and then you know i think trust the uh, trust the listeners to either if, if they do disagree you know at least the aim of this conversation is to think you know a bit more about them um, a bit more about the content and um, you,
1: you have to um something i learned about when i was reading philosophy in my final year you have to plant your flag you have to there's there's a certain like arrogance that's required in order for you to plant your flag so if you move up to even middle leadership you need to be able to thoroughly and rigorously plant your flag in the ground and say this is where i am right now now having the ability to move that flag is also crucially important to any form of leadership, but having the ability to plant that in the first place is crucially important. Now, I'm not there with primary in general, in terms of like teaching, where I feel confident enough to plant that flag all over the shop, but I'm just about getting there with RE, where I now feel confident to plant that flag and say, this is what RE is, and this is for me, and this is, I think, what RE should be for other schools, because yeah um, when I was a philosophy student I spent the last two years of my degree sort of saying I don't I don't really have an opinion on this or like you know just letting it wash over me in a way and not trying to plant a stake and not saying I'm a this or I'm that um and that's where I was also for that period of time before I read Daisy Christodoulou I was also very much like not taking a stance on any kind of pedagogical arguments or this that and the other um and recently I've it's quite important that teachers plant their flags that teachers feel confident in what they're saying um yeah because you know there are certainly people out there who will have done less reading or thought less strongly about things who will quite happily plant their flags (laughs) um and uh you know what probably a sign of um being as you say thinking more deeply about things is a reluctance to do that But then that means that it's that T.S. Eliot poem about the people who shout the loudest often have the least to say. Yeah, which, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Yeah. And my first book, I sort of did a lot of fence sitting. um, And then four years later in the second, it was it was like you say, it was it was a flag plant. And um, I, I feel much more satisfied with the end product. You know, I'm happy with both of them but in terms of, as a representation of me and where I'm coming from it with maths education, you know, that having, and I think it's through the product of talking to people and then sort of giving me the confidence to do that. And yeah, so I totally totally see where you're coming from and I think it is. It,
1: It certainly helps to feel like you're not alone where you are, where you've decided to plant that flag. I think that was one of the benefits of listening to the first series of this podcast for me is that I really, after doing that, I really felt, like um you know like my understanding of primary was a lot deeper but also that where I was starting to think about planting flags in primary um less because the curriculum side I feel pretty strong confident about but the pedagogical side and the pastoral side I'm still very much in the novice position about and um yeah listening to that first podcast was like oh okay well yeah you know that's reassuring to me that I'm not alone in feeling that or that I'm not alone in feeling strongly about that
0: that's awesome to hear that's almost in all the all the hours worth you know mission accomplished kind of situation and you know because like i said it's really good fun and talking to people but you know they they have so much to give as well and and so you know we we may possibly have covered this but what is it that um schools who provide a stellar religious education offering do so well
1: um well yeah i I mean we haven't we haven't I think there was uh, first thing I wrote was that there's a clear vision of the curriculum I think we've covered that um the second thing was, was that it's sequenced in a really coherent way and I'm just doing that now with next year's RE curriculum we're moving from half termly units to termly units um and I've now written all the units so it's a matter of sequencing them and I'm pretty excited about that because uh yeah, I basically get to sit down with a load of post-it notes and uh and make you know you know what's that uh, I think it's from Always Sunny in Philadelphia he's got the red string from every that's going to be me with my curriculum map uh, by the end of the spring term so yeah uh, sequencing and I mean you can go and read a hundred billion blogs about how to properly sequence a curriculum um so many people uh, are you know have a clear idea about that um rooted in the local community I'm really keen that a whole curriculum is strongly linked to our local areas. Um, Primary schools have the benefit of being hyper-local. So a secondary school might cover an entire town or borough, you know, half a borough, something like that. Uh, But a a primary school is hyper-local. So you can really dig down into the kind of community that you're in and reflect that in your curriculum. For us, in my school, even though we're in an incredibly multicultural area in Southwark, we have a a large Afro-Caribbean Christian population and a large muslim population so our curriculum reflects that with a focus on islam and christianity i think if we were in we were three miles further south we might cover hinduism in more depth if we were five miles further north we might cover judaism in more depth Um, also linking into the history of the local area uh, well that's across the curriculum you know and i think one of the great things that the history curriculum has is a local study And if I was in charge of writing the RE national curriculum, which I can only dream of existing, as we've discussed, um, I would include local study in that as well. Uh, And we do that in our school. You know, when we look at church architecture, we look at Southwark Cathedral and uh, we look at modern churches in South London. When we do Islamic architecture, we start by looking at the al Faisal Mosque in Newington. So there's rooted in the local community is so crucial and then connected with history and geography, not in a like topic way. So not like, well, we're going to do the Romans, so we might as well do Roman religion as well, but in a meaningful way of like, are you going to teach the Reformation before you teach the Tudors and before you teach uh yeah, before you teach the Tudors? Are you going to teach the idea of pantheism as a concept before you teach um uh Roman the Romans? Are you going to teach uh I'm running out of examples. Now. <laughs> there are links that you can make between those um, and making sure that you've done one before the other or you're doing both simultaneously and that the links are meaningful and not um, what's the word I'm looking for? tokenistic. So we're not just doing Hinduism here because we're going to do like one Hindu story in, in English for example uh and then yeah knowledge rich but not knowledge heavy and then i wrote down a quote here that i think exemplifies um what i mean by knowledge rich and knowledge heavy and it's from the history boys which is uh really i love the history boys um and it's hector and he gets furious when he's been told that the boys have been learning gobbets uh, to use in their in their Oxbridge exams um gobbets of like little factoids that they can roll out to sound impressive i think that's maybe some people's idea of what is meant by cultural capital in particular is that we equip children with these gobbits. and he said that he says he's furious that every answer will be hung like a christmas tree with gobbits. and i just think that's what knowledge heavy means and knowledge rich is all about fluency and then i guess if i'm going to borrow a maths word about mastery as well um, wow i've never really thought about mastery in re there yeah there's a blog post uh, coming soon to to a blog near you.
0: Excellent that's that's really clear and actually that was one of my questions was going to be um, about how you make the how you make that sequence and um, and I think the example you gave is really powerful you know like you said because the history curriculum and the RE curriculum there's they have a lot in common and you know I think that'd be a really enjoyable activity to do would be to sit down with the history lead and talk mm. about when, when is this most powerful to feature? And yeah, I think that, that's a really clear and really great example. And yeah, I think
1: that comes with seeing RE as a humanities subject. RE is a humanities subject as far as I'm concerned. Again, partisan taking a position. I know people disagree with me quite vehemently on that, but for me, RE is a humanities subject.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And there are a lot of jigsaw pieces in my head just sort of coming together, you know, having lived some of them and, um, you know, even thinking about the differences in communities. And if I think about where I live and where I work, the the sort of the identities of the towns are very, very different. Um, and obviously I've lived through and taught Ari, but I'm, I'm putting it together with all the different ideas. It, it's making a whole lot of sense, so it is. And do you think that... Um, the schools who don't manage to give such a good offering is it just the inverse or are there is there anything that any pitfalls they fall into that listeners should try and avoid
1: yeah um i think it's all about this seeing re as a, a special delicate little baby that needs that needs someone who knows everything about it in order to lead it um confidently uh that doesn't have it doesn't have right and wrong answers you know if we're going to write AJ Smith's seven educational myths about RE that's like myth number one that RE doesn't have right and wrong answers. Um, that I think there's muddy water around like the right to withdraw from RE. No other subject in the curriculum can parents write into schools and say oh, I don't want my child learning French, Just don't believe in French um and you know the fact that re is seen as this special subject has i think led to that right to withdraw that hasn't caught up with the fact that in most schools re is a non-religious subject it's not about religious instruction it's not about um you know even acts of collective worship which are a million miles away from what re should be in 2021 uh so yeah not having it like that i think also that this idea that it's too difficult too sensitive to teach you should be very wary of certain things, but then you should address that explicitly. So with year two, I've just done an online uh, course of six lessons on the Prophet Muhammad. Now for me, as a Muslim, not as a Muslim, I don't choose to use the honorific peace be upon him in my slides or um, when I'm talking about it, but I know that one of the year two teachers is Muslim and she chooses to use that when she's writing her description of it. But then we address that in lesson one. We say, you know, th- some Muslims use peace be upon him, Uh, as an honorific because of this Uh, also we're not going to be doing a storyboard activity we're not even going to be like writing our own versions or putting ourselves into the shoes of muhammad because those would be disrespectful and this is for these reasons um so you explicitly address the difficulty you make clear to students what is respectful and disrespectful um and probably uh slightly on the side of caution maybe there are more things we could do i was pretty um pretty uh, careful putting together this PowerPoint to not include any kind of representational images of people let alone Muhammad so it's just like a desert and a camel and stuff and then there's even a, a winged character called Burak and I was kind of searching around as to whether I could include a statue of him that is in, in Indonesia whether that would be appropriate um, and then I would be totally open to parents coming to me and saying look we felt that this was respectful this was disrespectful I'd also feel moderately confident to be able to rebut some things and defend the subject um and that position of like uh confidence in it is important to good re to be able to defend your subject you probably have to do a lot more than if you're head of maths (laughs) um uh yeah so not too sensitive not oh the other thing i wanted to mention as well i think it came up on twitter recently was the idea of being over ambitious so i think that like a lot of RE is under ambitious or not maybe that's unfair maybe not under ambitious but just like it doesn't realize its full potential doesn't realize how far it can go and so we do some pretty crazy stuff like teaching year four about um, Aquinas and Augustine and conscience and we do it in a really straightforward step-by-step rose and shine breaking things down making sure the understanding is there that's fine however I think there's a tendency and I a- absolutely absolutely know it and understand it because I've been there and I've done it and perhaps this year four module is an example of it to be over ambitious and to be like yeah well you know in year three we can actually get them to understand these 400 different terms in Arabic and like they can match them up on a matching activity and that proves that they've got this incredible understanding of RE just be patient you know you as a primary school teacher you take it all the way up to year six and you can start to do some pretty tricky interesting stuff in year six uh, I've got this idea about essentialism, um, diversity and uh, dissent in terms of like how we teach religion. And you can get all the way to that diversity. You can teach different denominations. You can look at the history of religion. But please leave some stuff for secondary school and A-level because, yeah, you can get a kid to talk about really, com- you can get a kid in year, year four probably to maybe just about understand act and rule utilitarianism. I mean, I think I've just about done that. But they're not going to do it again until year twelve, providing they do GCSE RE and A level RE. And uh, arguably, I think most people can get to their deathbed without really needing to understand the finer points of act utilitarianism. Pains me to say that, but somehow people cope. I don't know how, but somehow they cope. Um, so over ambition can be just as dangerous as under ambition, because then you get frustrated. You're like, oh, last year I taught them. Yeah you know, Hegel. (laughs) And now they're in year four and they don't even remember it and they can't. Uh, So just stick to the basics. There's no shame in that. Religion is interesting enough. Um, And you forget what kids don't know as well. You forget that kids in year one don't know what prayer is and have no concept, a lot of them, of God as a supernatural being. You can't just turn up and start talking about God. You really have to lay the basic foundations. So yeah, and uh, I mean... I did put on my sheet here, I put worldviews question mark. There's a big discussion going on in RE at the moment about a name change to religion and worldviews, about what worldviews are, what it means. I mean, it's good to have that kind of like discussion. It's happened in history maybe like 10 years ago, but happening in RE now. Um, I'm not a fan of worldviews. You can read a a blog post on my blog about why I think worldviews are. well, I think I ended it by saying something really stupid, like either these are, it's a well-meaning attempt that unfortunately opens the door up for a sort of like secularization of the subject and a uh, and a slow dismantling of the subject, or it's all a grand conspiracy by, you know, secular forces to get rid of RE. Um, either way, I'm not, I don't believe in them. Uh, I don't believe in them. I do believe in them. I believe they exist. I believe they're, they're a way of looking at RE, but... Not a fan, but I'm not going to spend ages talking about it because that's the real nitty gritty. And also, you know, I've already stuck my foot in my mouth. I'll probably have like 400 direct messages after this from RE teachers who've been doing it five times as long as I have um, telling me why I'm, I'm wrong on everything. But I guess that's the risk you take, isn't it?
0: No, I think it it all comes from, like, the, the confidence you're describing comes from your knowledge of the subject, doesn't it? And, you know, the, the person who is um, is driving RE in the school, you know, in the best case scenario, will have a similar amount of sort of belief in in what what they understand RE to be and and how that looks to them, you reckon I think, because I don't think you can defend your decisions, for instance, in a conversation with a parent as you described, mm. unless you've got that sort of really fundamental understanding.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, maybe a bit of a, a fantasy scenario, though, given the situation we're in. I, I mean, I don't mean to disparage anyone, and it's it's not disparaging at all. It's just a statement of fact that most RE leads don't ha- come from the same position that, that I do in terms of confidence and prior knowledge. But that's not a bad thing, because we're all learning, and hopefully people who are RE leads don't just see that as a stepping stone from you know into deeper roles in the school. One of the probably worst things you can do for RE is have a different RE lead every year because that person that's seen as a stepping stone to English lead or maths lead. Um, so I would beg schools to seek out people to be RE lead who want to do it for three or four years. Yeah, that's probably important.
0: Yeah, that's fair. That's, 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 a fair point. And um, you know, I'm happy to stand corrected on that one. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, cause like, um, yeah, I, I think you're right. And um, I think, the longer, you know, we're allowed to explore our interests in, in such a way, you know, being RE coordinator for a couple of years, rather than thinking that you have to become maths coordinator, or English coordinator to be a success in the school is a, it? it makes a big difference, I think, um, like and
1: I think in a way, like primary benefits from a very flat management structure. So I think there's nothing to say that, that if a school really valued RE, I don't see why someone couldn't go from being RE lead for five years to being SLT. I don't see why there has to be an intermediate step. If RE is seen on the same level as other foundation subjects, and foundation subjects are seen as a serious part of the curriculum, then it should be a myth that you probably need that additional step of of being English or maths coordinator. But in reality, I know that's not the case. Um, Maybe part of being RE lead is making the case for your subject and being an advocate in a way that you don't have to do in in other subjects
0: so i think sticking with the with the listeners what would you recommend to anyone wishing to develop their religious prowess you know in, in terms of teaching you know should read or engage with
1: um fortunately I, I had a blog post about this so i just went and found out what i wrote in the blog post uh very short introductions absolutely huge fan of these you know the little books they're about this big really on anything it doesn't re forget re Science, history. there must be hundreds and hundreds of them, and some of them are incredibly specific, um, more so now than at the beginning. So literally any very short introduction, there you have them for all the faiths that you're likely to teach, but also like the Reformation, Anglicanism, the Bible, the Quran, Muhammad. So you can get really down, they're like 150 pages, they're like ASIC size, So and you can dip in and out, and they're always written by experts. Uh, what else did I say? Oh, a book called A Little Religion of History by Richard Holloway is a really good narrative religion of um, history of religion. Sorry, did I say the, a little history of religion? Yeah. So um, that is something that I've used in Key Stage 3 uh, to just take text out of it. I'd probably do that in Upper Key Stage 2 if we were doing more of a like a reading based approach to RE. Um and it's a really quite entertaining read and it covers a lot of different world religions and it covers the basic stories of like jesus and muhammad and siddhartha katama and uh guru nanak and all that um karen armstrong um is a fantastic author who is basically like covers this rare category of re you know i said the, there wouldn't really be an re section in a bookshop she probably would be the only author in it necessarily because she does she writes across a number of religions so She's written books on um, Buddha and Muhammad and Paul, but also on Islam and God across the Abrahamic faiths and uh, and violence and religion and things. So they're a bit more in depth. They're maybe like 400 pages, but they're worth reading. Um, Textbooks. Huge fan of textbooks. Love textbooks. Wish there were textbooks for primary RE. I talked about this on Twitter and got some um, kickback saying that RE doesn't really lend itself to textbooks Again, that's obviously something I disagree with. I think it very much does uh, in the same way that history and geography do. Uh, But Key Stage 3 textbooks, the Knowing Religion series by Collins and the horrible, awful R.E. pun, what are they called? Inspire, with the R.E. capitalised on Inspire. Please shoot me now. Yeah. Oh, that's one thing I should warn you about. If you're thinking about becoming an RE lead, you're going to have to get used to RE puns on every single corner and it will make you cry. And I don't think any other subject has to put up with this because you try making a pun out of PHSE. Um, Yeah. So those textbooks, because I think there's always been this thing about you should be reading a key stage above where you are. Um, So that's great. But there's nothing, you know, I use GCSE textbooks quite a lot. and you can usually pick them up secondhand fairly cheaply. But make sure you're using high-quality ones because RE has changed a lot in the last 10 years. Um, I do use some older ones. I use some from, like, maybe 20, 30 years ago. Um, but you dig far enough back and you get to some terms where you're like, oh, I wouldn't use that term now. I wouldn't use that anglicized spelling of, of this Islamic term or something like that. So be careful with RE textbooks. Um, natre. Yes. National Association of Teachers of RE. Join it. Uh, Get your school to pay for your membership, preferably. Uh, They publish a magazine every term, which has a section called Professional REflections. Professional Reflections. Yes, great. Great joke. Very funny. Um, Anyway, so, and that's got, that's sort of getting towards the quality of, like, the Historical Association now, um, in terms of, like, what's being written. You've got people like Richard Q, Richard Key, I don't know how to say his surname but writing about disciplinary stuff you've got all sorts of people in there writing about RE which is great, um, there's a book called Reforming RE which I don't agree with and um, it's, for me there's it has got many authors some chapters I agree with but a lot of it I don't but I'm definitely going to recommend it because it's a real conversation starter it's been really key to RE basically since it came out a year maybe two years ago in informing a lot of conversations. And there's a great blog as well. I've obviously never been invited to write on that blog because of my fundamental disagreement with, with the idea of worldviews, but there are some amazing authors on that Reforming RE blog. It's a fantastic project. It's one of those things where I just admire the like rigorousness of it and the, how well written everything is. And I just fundamentally disagree with almost everything people have to say uh, on the subject. So I'm definitely gonna recommend that. Um, 100 ideas in re by andy lewis andy lewis is an amazing textbook writer fantastic thinker on re and he wrote 100 ideas for secondary re but you can pinch them all for primary um yeah brilliant love that book and then finally make every re lesson count by louise hutton and dawn cox just came out in the last month and it's a game changer for re you know that whole make every lesson count series is fantastic um there's obviously designed for for secondary RE, but Nick's stuff from it, it's great. It's got all the stuff about theological, philosophical, sociological lenses in it. So it's worth buying it just for that. Sorry, that was like, almost like my Amazon wishlist, wasn't it? That was one thing after another. So maybe don't read all of those, maybe just a few. <laughs> well,
0: that's that that's an absolute treasure chest of, of resources to go to. Um, and to be honest, I'll be looking, I'll be listening back and and buying some of the, you know, the books for myself thinking actually, yeah, that, that sounds really interesting. Um, what I really liked was the point about reading stuff even though you disagreed with it. And mm. because um, I always say don't necessarily follow people you disagree with, because there's not much to be gained from the same circular arguments on social media, but definitely read to hear what the other arguments are, because you know you never know when you might change your mind. So I think that helps
1: I love that sentiment. I've never thought of that before, but it's so true. I don't follow many people I disagree with because what can you do in 280 characters but fall out with people block people get upset on twitter i'm not really into that move past that point in my life now um but absolutely read stuff you disagree with i mean whether that's in RE or whatever it is in i think it's worth doing and obviously you're going to find out that what people write in a 150 page book is a lot more nuanced than what they say on twitter um and you're going to find that a lot of your disagreements with people dissolve or become less uh you know confrontational, less of a dichotomy. So I completely agree with that. Uh, it's absolutely crucial to every teacher to to read and engage with things they disagree with. It doesn't mean you have to follow people you disagree with on Twitter. Also, there are just some people out there who are just bad actors, um, bad faith people who publish bad research. And, you know, I think that's part of planting your flag as well as admitting that not everyone is um Some people are just antagonists, and then there are antagonists on my side, and there are antagonists on their side. <laughs> it's not unique to you know it's not like my guys are all the good guys, and their guys are all the bad guys, but yeah, it's um it's a minefield. I almost feel such a double edged sword saying to people, You should get on edge you Twitter mm-hmm. Ooh. <laughs> I don't know,
0: <laughs> yeah, I think a healthy mute block relationship with Twitter is, is probably the best way but I think it's good I find that
1: having a, um, a, a a list of words that you are muted you can still see them if you choose to I was reading something today and I was like what word have I muted that is in this and it had the word woke in it and I muted the word woke because I just don't need to read people's opinions about how woke teachers are or how unwoke they are so um, yeah mute. my mute word list is probably like 200 words long at this point
0: yeah yeah in, in in thinking deeply about primary mathematics I even say I don't mind if you block me you know because it's your it's your mental health at the end of the day that you have to fact, <laughs> if you're getting really stressed about what someone says on social media then it's yeah. n- you're not getting the goodness because there's so much goodness out there you know yeah. like all the people from season one I met on social media and you know that and my career is much richer for the fact that I've I sort of met them and talked about pedagogy and things and
1: there's no way I'd be even I would still be maybe second in department in a secondary school you know if it wasn't for Twitter it's fine but my career would be vastly hugely unrecognizably different if it wasn't for the two years I've spent on edu Twitter so it's good but I'm also sort of like uh, you know what's that joker thing I was born in you have only experienced edu Twitter I was born in you know I've had a Twitter account since like 2008 so yeah maybe that helps to navigate the uh, intricacies of it
0: yeah i think you hit the nail on the head with minefield that's right yeah (laughs) um so then i suppose my next question comes in two parts one we possibly discuss quite a bit but it's um sort of like the features of a high quality re curriculum in your opinion and how might schools bridge the gap between their ambition and the reality that they're currently experiencing okay
1: Uh, I think the first part I can do quite quickly, because we talked a fair bit about my idea of what high quality is. Um, I just wanted to bring up very briefly an idea that I was developing a while ago. I never really came back to of an inquiry model for RE, that I think actually works in primary really well. And that's seeds, branches, seeds, roots and branches. So the idea of this is that seeds are the, the concepts that we plant. Fairly early on, year one, year two, but all the way through, actually, right up until year 13, we're constantly planting these new concepts and heads and they get more complex as time goes on. But um, and, and concepts, you know, we say concepts, but what does it really mean? Mary Meyer, who's um, a huge hero of mine, said uh, intellect, they are the intellectual architecture on which knowledge and insights can be pinned. And I really like that idea of intellectual architecture. So we might plant a seed like sacrifice or scripture or something like that. And then the roots are the, um, the roots are the the representation of what that concept looks like intellectually. So that, you could say that's the theology lens that we use. So things like scripture and theology and parables, myths and philosophy are all roots. And the more we extend those roots, the secure the tree will be. So, and we can keep going and keep going, and we can go off here and off there and You know, I like this idea of roots because you can constantly go deeper and more complex with roots. And then the branches are the more like sociological, historical, cultural uh, elements of religion. So once we've grown that tree, we have buried those roots. What do the branches and leaves look like? So what is what does prayer mean for believers? Uh, How does it manifest in visual art? We do like a whole term on Christianity and visual art and a whole term on Islam and visual art how does it manifest in architecture uh, in festivals? But I'm particularly interested in the question of how it manifests in social action. So religious, things like Catholic social teaching, Islamic aid, uh, we do a whole module on uh, Islam and climate change and look at the Hajj and the impact of that and stewardship and ideas. So that's another example. So that's, for me, that's a curriculum model for RE, which I think leads to high quality RE. If you've got that idea of a concept, theological roots, and then sociological, cultural, historical, artistic um, expressions. Second question was about making sure that the um, that you actually implement a, a high quality RE curriculum. Again, I'm going to be a bit radical here, and I'm just going to say start small and simple, okay? So if you currently do not teach explicitly explicit RE, you are maybe going to look for half an hour in your curriculum a week. Maybe you're just going to look for half an hour a week for three of the six half terms uh, in your first year. And you're going to claim that curriculum space. You're going to say, this is RE, religious education. If you want to call it something else, you can call it something else. But this is religious education. And in those slots, you're going to do year one Christianity, year two Islam, year three Buddhism, year four Judaism, year five Sikhism, year six Hinduism. And that's it. And if you don't revisit those things, um, that's a shame that's where you're going to work towards and grow towards okay so you've got there you've got breadth and no depth whatsoever and then what you do for the next few years is you build up that depth and you build up that revision and you build up that reviewing things so you think about how you can maybe expand that half an hour to an hour or you think about how you can teach it every half term how you're going to implement that but for my mind it's better to even cut back on RE until you feel confident that you're delivering a high quality, distinct, explicit RE curriculum. I'm not precious about every school has to teach RE because it has this huge moral and social and moral and, and cultural purpose, you know, that even bad RE is going to be um, improving our communities and making them more coherent and giving children this, this, this positive view of diversity. I'm fine. I'd rather not do re than do bad re i mean again it's controversial it's my personal position but sorry that's that's what i believe i think re is has a like i said i think i have a clarity of purpose behind re and for me personally i'd rather that that time was spent on history or that time is spent on doing something weird like classics or mandarin um, than doing I'm not going to give examples of bad RE because that will really land me in hot water because I expect 90% of your listeners will say, "But we do that. And, and like, I do it as well. Don't worry, I do it. You know, even I do bad RE. I'm not trying to say that, that I'm immune to it. But yeah, it's that. Um, uh, and then making sure that everything justifies itself on the curriculum. So everything you point to and you say it's linked to this, 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 and this, uh, it's linked to this and other subjects uh, it's there because we're this is the the, the seed uh, concept that we've planted and we're developing it from year two and we're de- developing it up to year five and like I say the wall from it's always sunny in Philadelphia behind you with all your links on it that you can understand and explain so that um, everything justifies its place in the curriculum and nothing stands alone I don't think anything in RE stands alone and I think if you've got stuff in your RE curriculum that does stand alone like I say maybe that that module that you did for International Women's Day that you're like, oh, no, nothing against International Women's Day, but, you know, does that link into any of the other RE curriculum? Scrap it or give it to PHSE or give it to someone else. If you've got a random bit of, like, LGBT History Month that's been whacked into your RE curriculum, it, it's not RE, mate. And, like, you know, it's important to me that kids get an education about LGBT issues, but that is PSHE, PHSE. I always say... I'm not going to go down that route. I always say PHSE because that's what it was when I was at school. Um, yeah. And I think that's, oh, and seek help. Not like, in a, you know, maybe you want to seek uh, a mental health professional after you've been told that you're the RE lead. <laughs> I mean, that's been helpful for me. But um, no, I mean, seek help um, from uh, your trust. If you're in a trust, seek help from your local authority, uh, might still have an RE advisor. Join your Natre uh, local group, because you'll be surprised. There probably is one if you're not a member of it already. Um, I have always, like, I love talking about REs. You can probably tell, so DM me. I'm always happy to chat on Zoom with people about stuff um, and point people in the right direction. Like, there are amazing people on Twitter. If you look at a lady called Katie Gooch, she regularly posts in reply to people a whole list of of primary RE people on Twitter. So seek some help uh, with your curriculum, because... There's not a book that I can recommend yet. (laughs) That is, uh, that's just like a a really simple, straightforward guide in a way that some of the guides I've written for other curriculum areas um, exist.
0: Yeah, I think everything we're talking about is tying together nicely because, you know, as you describe the way for a school that actually thinks, well, we need to improve our RE offering, just like your current school did a couple of years ago. And they need to set out an extended period of time and say right okay we're going to improve we're going to have a subject lead in there who's going to do it piece by piece and then in a couple of years time we will have the product that we you know the offering that we hope our kids have so you know i can see links between everything you're saying here and so then and really nice point you've just finished on because obviously recently and the timing couldn't have been any better (laughs) (laughs) Um, because I I think we were in the middle of a conversation and possibly the next day, John Kett announced that, um, and I'll make sure I get the name right, Powerful RE, A Step-by-Step Guide to Planning, Implementing and Teaching Knowledge-Rich Primary RE will be published later in 2021. And every time someone talks about a book, I ask them the same question. Um, Why does the world need this book?
1: Yes. I think, fortunately, I've got a really clear answer to that question, and that's because this book doesn't exist yet. There are a couple of guides to primary RE on the market, which, and I can't be clear enough about this because I think it's such a big qualifier to everything I say, I have a position in this debate in RE, right? I've taken this position of believing in academically rigorous, knowledge-rich RE. The other books that are out there on the market take a different position to that. You know, and, and it tends to be called creative re. Although one of the chapters in my book is about why uh, we need to keep the creativity but leave the soft touch behind. Um, but they do not. That's not my my vision of re. And I wouldn't recommend someone to read those books. Although again, like you say, like I have read them because um, I, I like to read things I disagree with. Um, so that's why it exists. Because I went on Amazon and I searched primary re, and I went on John Cat and I searched primary re, and, and nothing came up. And, and often people you know people never did this when I was a secondary teacher because I think there's so many secondary RE because of the way that specialism works in secondary people with me all the time wanting to talk about primary RE I love talking about primary RE, but I would love even more to be able to post a link to a book be like read this book so I can do that a little bit with make every RE lesson count but with the qualifier that it's for secondary or with Andy Lewis's book with the qualifier that it's for secondary um, and so I just got to the point where I was like I just want to write the book that I wish existed, um, and so that's what I'm doing. And I'm not. Oh, I I feel so, so. I didn't necessarily know that John Cat were going to tweet that the book was coming. They did ask me beforehand, and I said it's fine. But my impression was that, that there was going to be a long period where I'd be writing this book and putting feelers out about this book and kind of laying the ground for this book and telling everyone I possibly could in earshot that I am not an expert in primary RE, that I am not, okay, with a big capital N.O.T., not claiming a position of like unique expertise, that I have all the answers, the whole purpose of this book is like already some of your guests have been annoyed by me because I've messaged them saying I have a list of questions for you I want to include a mini interview with you in the book like Elliot Morgan talking about task design right because he is amazing on task design so I'm just going to steal his expertise and whack it in the book Mary Meyer stealing her expertise whacking it in the book hundreds of hopefully people will have their expertise distilled and put through this frame of like how it relates to RE that maybe is where my expertise lies is in being able to parse like general ideas into the more specific idea of primary RE. And I guess I have the expertise... Expertise... Uh, you can't see air quotes on the audio version. I'm doing air quotes. Watch the video version if you want to see me doing air quotes. Um, the expertise of, of having actually written a year one to six curriculum, but also having made mistakes across the board, having gone to... Like a lot of it I've ended up teaching myself because I teach all of our virtual school RE and being like, oh, you're to of doing what? I wrote this six weeks ago and I was an idiot. And like, you know, so what can I say? I mean, I guess when you say oh, I'm writing a book, you take a certain position of expertise, don't you? But I'm horrified by the idea that there are all these people out there seeing, oh, he's writing a book. Four years. He's been to teach for four years and he's writing a book. Really Like massive huge imposter syndrome about it but like I say you have to plant your flag you have to do your thing I've always wanted to write a book (laughs) so that's a great reason to do it Um, because it's the book that I wish existed and I wish I could recommend to people and you know I've written a couple of chapters and um, it's okay I'm just seeing it basically as you know I have to write 21 blog posts right 21 blog posts with fully referenced beautifully written um with with people that I love and I think are incredibly intelligent and much more experienced and better thinkers than I am included in there so that's why this book is coming because I didn't if anyone else over the last six months had told me oh I'm writing this book about primary RE I'd be like yes thank god finally um and no one else has (laughs) so so it fell on me uh but yeah it's not I just wish I could have made the air quotes clearer. Does everyone know that I was doing air quotes when I was talking about expertise? I mean, like, it's just, I think it's come up particularly on Twitter this this weekend at the end of half, we're recording this at the end of February half term. And there's been this debate, as it were. You know, again, one of the things where, where I've added words to my muted list as a result of this um, about people claiming positions of expertise, podcasts, uh, you know, being part of that. And... Um, So I'm super self-conscious and that coincided with this book being announced. I'm super self-conscious that I'm still learning so much and I I don't want to, I don't know. I'm sure, I know other people feel like this when they're writing, but I just feel it really intensely at the moment.
0: Yeah, I I was going to say, I think even, you know, 10, 15 years down the line, you'll still feel the same way. Um, And, you know, it was only through conversations with people like Shannon saying, you know, you know, just, you know, just forget all that and what chris such said to me the only person who has to think the, the book is worthwhile is you because you're the one who spent the time writing. you know if other people want to engage with it then that's a bonus you know and i think you've, you've both set out your stall and it, it's been pretty clear that you have a lot to give in this subject and um, and the the model you've got, where you're going to take drawing expertise from other people, sounds, sounds absolutely superb. You know, so when I saw it was being th- when when I saw it tweeted, I thought, yes, this am, I'm interested in. It. But now I'm sold. I'm all like, yes, I cannot wait for this to happen. So you need to get those 21 blog posts written.
1: <laughs> yeah, I love the fact that they were so vague. They were like coming in 2021, and I was like, oh, December the 31st, 2021. That's my deadline. <laughs> so.
0: Excellent. i no, really looking forward to that. Um, so your work has inspired many um, and will continue to do so for a long time, I think. Where do you draw your sources of inspiration from?
1: Um, I, I wrote lists, right? And I know I've done a lot of lists and this is kind of boring, but I thought about just people who've been like really important to my journey. And so it kind of divided it into two, two categories and those are people who have a clear vision and i think i've i think even just assessing myself and how i've talked over the last however long it's been i think you can see that i have a clear vision for what are full of self-doubt, full of questioning, full of wanting to learn, but I do have quite a clear vision of what I think RE is and what I place it to take in the curriculum, and that's inspired by people like Michael Young talking about, so it's called Powerful RE, right, because I'm totally stealing or borrowing or using whatever the correct parlance is, uh, Michael Young's Powerful Knowledge, because it's one of the most, it just hit me like an absolute ton of bricks, because there was this dichotomy of like, you know, trad is right-wing and progressive is left-wing, and if you have a trad- I can't see air quotes on the audio version. (laughs) Using air quotes, trad view of the world. Then you must be right wing. You must have this view about culture and knowledge. Michael Young took that and and just got rid of it. And thanks be to him for doing that. Mary Meyer, who I've mentioned several times, has a super clear idea of what high quality curriculum is. Absolute hero. Uh, Daniel Willingham just knows what education should look like. And again, his book was one I read at the same time as Daisy Christodoulou and Rosenshine and just completely revolutionized my view of I never had any interest in cognitive science before that I still don't really now but I understand it a little bit better um Tom Bennett is another one you know people say oh he's not a teacher he's not in the classroom but he has a clear idea of what um his idea of a behavior policy should be and what his own so people with clear visions who are not afraid to go and stick their neck out put their head above the parapet and advocate for them are hugely inspirational for me and although you can see I'm like crippled with kind of like self-doubt and imposter syndrome I just want to have that confidence being able to do that and I guess you have to have a certain not caring what other people think that I don't yet possess and then and then on the other hand are people just feet on the ground in classrooms but taking the time to share their experiences to be humble to be um, knowledgeable to be like to be unashamedly open with with the mistakes they've made. And that's one of the great things about this podcast, I think, is that people talk about the mistakes they made. and That's the most entertaining bit, right? Apart from when you do the tier lists, when people are talking about the mistakes they made, that is my favourite bit. Um, And then people, yeah. So I think like people who've been on the podcast, like uh, Neil and Elliot and Shannon and Lloyd and everyone who was on the last season of the podcast, um, it's difficult almost to put, like, I I don't mean to like, be really like suck-uppy but this listening to the last season of this podcast had a pretty similar effect for me in primary as reading those papers and those books did for me in secondary you know it really made me think very differently also released me from a huge amount of guilt about taking time at weekends and evenings to do CPD and stuff I'm very similar to Neil when he had his really long commute like I commute from South End to South London 90 minutes every day on a train and I use that time to like read and listen to podcasts and stuff. i always felt really guilty about it because I was like, I should be resting. Where's my mental health? Where's my work-life balance? So it released me from that. So I'm super glad about that. Um, other people like Andy Lewis, Dawn Cox, Louise Hutton, who've just written amazing books about RE, but just do it in their everyday life. I think Dawn Cox has been amazing this week, probably coming from a similar position of me, having to make explicitly clear on Twitter that she didn't do everything that was in her book that she is not, a per- her RE curriculum is not perfect at her school, that that the way that she teaches is not perfect, because teaching is always a compromise, and I'm writing this book on primary curriculum, I can tell you there's stuff in there that I'm advocating for, that I don't know how I would implement in my very specific context, for example, we only do half an hour a week of RE, and so doing extended writing, it's not where I want it to be, right, or not doing extended writing, or whatever that debate is, so there's that, and that, honesty and that acknowledgement about where things are. Um and also on that with Mark Enzer and, and Zoe Enzer as well, because they're incredible. Uh and Mark is a book writing machine. It seems like every every day I get post and it's one of Mark's books that I've pre-ordered. Um and I always say to him like, I'm just really glad that it comes direct from the publisher and it's not signed because I think the copies he hasn't signed are actually worth more. They're rarer because, you know, bless him Mark. Um, but he just He's just, like I say, he's just a book writing machine and he just has this way of like taking ideas and putting them into print and being really open about it. And you're like, but you're also, you also have a proper job and like a life and, and you know, and Zoe's the same. They're just really generous with their knowledge. And I guess similarly to the people in the first list, like they they take a position and and they're happy to, to talk about why they got to that place. So that's my lists. Those are my lists. So i could go on and on i could just give you hundreds of people who are inspirational but but they're my my chosen ones
0: nice. that's superb and um, yeah whenever i ask people to talk about who they are and where they're from i had no idea i think it was the second recording i'd done was with neil and he just totally gave me his whole his whole back, his background and i was like whoa this is this is a much deeper question than i'd ever imagined it. <laughs> so i totally know where you're coming from you know cause
1: yeah. There's a big similarity between that section of your podcast and when you go to church and people give you testimonials about their faith, it's almost uncanny how similar it is. People talking about their faith journeys and people talking about their uh, school journeys is like the same. And at the end of whenever you do either, you always feel deeply self-indulgent. But when you listen to other people's, you feel really interested in it because you see yourself reflected and things like that. So
0: yeah nice i had no idea how you know the the impact that was having that's that's fantastic Um, and so i suppose the last one before we move on to the tier list and is there any final advice you'd give for teachers who are now feeling energized and ready to up their religious education game um
1: you can you'll be able to pre-order my no i'm joking Uh, i don't know when you'll be able to pre-order my book when it's written i assume um no i've written down three things read as much as you can however much you get time for Obviously I like, I read a fair bit, but you know, maybe it's just a blog post a month, whatever. Uh read stuff. Um, make mistakes, like you will make mistakes. It's, it's putting your stake in the ground is always gonna lead to to mistakes because you don't know everything, you can't predict the future. Um so acknowledge that you're gonna make mistakes in, in creating a cur- curriculum. Don't see a curriculum as a stone object that you will have to like really make efforts to chisel away at, but see curriculum as something that's like. Fluid and changeable, especially if you're implementing a new curriculum or you're adapting a curriculum, um, don't worry about making mistakes with it and fix them. Once you've acknowledged that you've made mistakes, like see it as a long-term thing and um try and fix those mistakes. Like you can change things. You know, like I say, I feel a little bit now, like I've done this year, one to six curriculum, like it's a bit immutable, but um, actually that frees up time in my job uh, as an re lead that i'm now not having to sit down and, and make powerpoints and booklets and, and lesson plans uh, that i can do some of this fixing and fiddling uh which i'm quite looking forward to really so yeah um and make connections with people as well like if you're not on twitter am i really going to go on record as saying get on twitter as if that's uh be, be aware of what twitter is like no do get on twitter twitter's absolutely i wouldn't be where i would be now, if it weren't for Twitter. Um, join Natray uh, and a local group and make connections, um, and um, people who are in multi-academy trusts as well should be talking about RE across those trusts. That's just what we're starting to do now. Um, I'm in a trust with three other primary schools and two secondary schools, and I'm really looking forward to the next year when we're going to vamp up our curriculum work um, across the trust. So yeah those, that's my advice for people who want to go and do it just i guess to distill it read about it just do it and then fix the mistakes afterwards that would be my advice
0: <laughs> that, that that's that's solid perfect thank you very much for joining us today it's been absolutely fascinating from start to finish and i know that people are going to feel really um really energized in terms of their re teaching and um, i know I, I wish i could teach it tomorrow and um, you know just based on this
1: i literally am teaching it tomorrow <laughs> so, recorded as it will be but yeah
0: awesome but uh, yeah yeah thank, thank you very much
1: no thank you and can i just say like please just dm me on twitter like or, or just message me on twitter whoever is listening to this that wants to talk about primary RE, um and i'll happily i've done over half time i've done maybe five or six zoom chats with people And just maybe like half an hour just to talk about their curriculum and stuff like that I love it it's as good for me as it is for them and it's something I'm trying to develop professionally as well it's like helping other schools and and things so yeah that's kind of a plea from me I guess if you're wanting to talk about it then I want to talk about it as well so